Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, episode 100 and what, what is this? 164 of Dial the Gate, the Stargate uh, oral history project. It's taken me two years to come up with that line. We have Barry Campbell in this episode, the man who is responsible, f- in essence, for all of the Arctic sequences in Stargate Continuum, and he's going to tell that, uh, that story to us. But before we get into the thick of this episode, if you enjoy Stargate and you want to see more content like this appearing on YouTube, it would mean a great deal to me if you click that like button. It makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will help the show continue to grow its audience. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute guest changes. And clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next few weeks on the Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels. As this is a live episode, Barry is, is uh, with us uh, here. So if you are in the chat, you can submit questions to him regarding Stargate Continuum, regarding his time up at uh, the North Pole. He's going to talk about that a little bit more. And um, his life now as a beekeeper, frankly, which which I think is, is some of the most uh, satisfying and fascinating stuff of all. Mr. Barry Campbell. A dear friend of mine, sir, it is such a pleasure to have you on this show. This is this is long overdue, and my apologies for that up front. How are you? I am just great, and I am just so delighted to have heard from you and to be able to do this. So uh, it uh, it's it's not top of mind anymore with me because it's been a while. But uh, once in a while, one of my friends, I'll be out at the winery, and one of my buddies will say to the people we've just sat down with. Oh, did you know Barry Campbell was in a movie? And then I get to bring it all back up again. And it's just <laughs> a love it. Absolutely. What does APLIS stand for? Uh, Applied Physics Laboratory Ice Station. <clears throat> and we, we called it APLIS because the University of Washington Applied Physics Laboratory was uh, the Navy's hired logistics uh, team. And basically... Uh, Arctic Submarine Laboratory, where I worked, uh, would liaison with the Applied Physics Lab and their their group of specialists to let them know what we needed uh, in the way of housing, uh, lo- other logistics facilities, snowmobiles, helicopters, whatever. And the Applied Physics Lab would then go out and let the contracts and get you know, do all the, the legwork because there were only like you know, there are only a dozen of us that work at Arctic Sub Lab at that time. And so we just, we didn't have that manpower. So, uh, when is this? The, what year are we talking? Uh, 2007. Okay. Uh, the, the ice camp with Stargate was in 2007. Uh, the start of the movie came out in 2008. And I then did my last ice camp in 2009 and retired shortly after that. Uh, I had been doing ice camps, uh, with the Arctic Sub Lab since the 80s. Wow. Every pretty much every year, uh, every other year, usually year. just it takes takes like 15 months minimum to organize an entire two month ice camp. So we couldn't do it once a year. Just didn't have the time because we had to do other things, too. I mean, supporting the ice camp was only one of the tasks that Arctic Sublad did. And, and in fact, it wasn't even the number one task. Wow. The number one task was uh, providing training and uh, Arctic uh, specialists to ride along on submarines that went to the Arctic uh, all through the year. Okay. So that was our big job. So you are Navy, right? Ex-Navy. Ex-Navy. Uh, yeah, I retired. I retired as a commander, which is the same as a lieutenant colonel uh, in the uh, Air Force uh, Stargate world. Well, uh, I want to say thank you for your service, sir. Well, it was uh, it was delightful. 
And uh, I, I appreciate the appreciation I get uh, every time I wear my Navy ball cap. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, it was a it was a wonderful thing to do. I highly recommend it. But uh, for me, it was a delight. How did you get involved in being in one of the most inhospitable climates on the face of the planet? You must if, enjoy the cold. Well, if you dress for it, the cold is fine. Uh, and that's what I learned in the Arctic. You have to be able to dress for it. Um, I was in the Navy for six and a half years active duty, got out and got into the reserves, uh, working here and there. I was in Hawaii at the time. And uh, my commanding officer in the reserves found out that I had gone to the Arctic on USS Bluefish in 1975 as a lieutenant. Uh, not many people get to do that. So I was uh, not unique, but I was one of a few that had that experience. And he was friends with the head of operations at the time of Arctic Submarine Laboratory. I was living in Hawaii. Arctic Sublab was in San Diego. They wanted to have somebody that worked for them living in Hawaii, working on the, the, the commander of the submarine forces staff. The submarine force commander for the Pacific is in Pearl Harbor. So they wanted to have somebody to be there, sort of like their little spy behind the scenes and liaison with, uh, for Arctic matters with the type commander, the uh, submarine commander. So my boss talked to the, his friend who was director of Arctic Sublab, and the guy flew over and interviewed me. And in about a month, I was not only working for Arctic Sublab, but I was on my first training mission as an Arctic ice pilot or a, a, a submarine uh, Arctic operations specialist. And what year and that was this? Oh, I think it was like uh, 85, wow. something like that. 83, 85, something like that. And uh, and then, you know, the rest is history. I lived in Hawaii, uh, worked for Arctic Sublab for 17 years while living in Hawaii. And then uh, the director of operations got promoted to be the uh, second in command at Arctic Sublab, leaving the director of operations spot open. And I... And three other of the uh, uh, then ICE pilots put our put our names in the hat, and I was selected to take over as director of operations, and moved from Hawaii then to San Diego to work in the lab there. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And then. So I, you go. Yeah. So in total, uh, from my my first mission as a lieutenant on USS Bluefish in 1975, I've been uh, to the actual North Pole 15 different times on 15 different nuclear submarines, including two British Royal Navy submarines. Uh, so it was in, in, in that. And then I was also involved in, and then later on, officer in charge of about a half a dozen or more floating ice stations, ice camps like Atlas uh, in the Arctic. Does residing in that part of the world for a time uh, change you at all? change how you, you mean, perceive the world, change how you perceive yourself in it. Uh, you mean living up at the ice camp? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's like, it's like people ask me, how can you possibly be on a submarine? No windows, tight spaces. Doesn't it get claustrophobic? Well, being in the Arctic is not like that. I mean, it's wide open, but you're so busy that uh, if you're, if you're really lucky, you can uh, sit back and put your feet up and have a cup of coffee now and then. Uh, I, the way I ran the ice camp was I ran it. I just didn't, I mean, I had, had lots of good people and I, and they understood the way I wanted it. And I understood they were capable of doing it and let them do it. But I had my little eyes and ears all the time on what was going on. So I'd wake up at 5 a.m., uh, stop by the mess tent. Nobody else was there yet grab a cup of coffee, go over to the command hut, look through the, the plan for the day, what's going to go on, uh, get debriefed by the overnight watch on what had happened, contact my my uh, opposite number back at Prudhoe Bay to find out how, how things were shaping up there for the day. And I had done two hours of work before I even went over and had breakfast. Uh, and then the rest of the day was just like that. Very, very often I, I had my lunch as a sandwich in my hand with a microphone in the other talking with like when when Apple when Apple was there in 2007 for the um start with the Stargate folks came up that year 
we had uh, two nuclear submarines operating underneath us. Uh, We had two fixed-wing aircraft going back and forth between Prudhoe Bay and the ice camp. We had two helicopters that were local ops at the ice camp and in the surrounding environs. And then uh, every day we'd have two, three, four, five uh, field parties uh, leaving the ice camp a mile, two, three miles, whatever, to do whatever they were getting ready to do. And we had a team of under ice divers. Uh, and I was overseeing all of that. So if I wasn't, you know, giving uh, instructions to the helicopters or the field parties, I was talking with the divers about they were going to be doing next or uh, our, our uh, liaison with the beach about what they should put on the next planes coming out. So it was a constant job. Now, it was I would work from 5 a.m. to about 11 p.m. Uh, and then go to bed and get six hours sleep. And uh, I was younger, uh, not a lot, but a little younger. <laughs> I got by with that. And, you know, I my head would hit the pillow and I'd be asleep in half a second and then <laughs> wake up the next day. But this it was seven uh, days a week, seven days a week. And that <sighs> that part of it lasted about two weeks. OK, so seven days a week for about two weeks. The two weeks before that was a more uh, relaxed time where the camp was bu- building up. And the two weeks after that was a more relaxed time where the camp was uh, winding down. But the real stressful time when the submarines were involved was five to 11, seven days a week. And it, uh, cha- it the only way it changed me was it wore me out, <clears throat> uh, but it was the most alive I'd ever been. I mean, the, the ability, you know, the uh, just, just uh, keeping everything straight in my mind as the day went on and being satisfied at the end of the day that I had done that was just phenomenal. I mean, I just, it was, uh, it was just so, so rewarding and so self-fulfilling. It was, uh, I didn't mind, you know, losing some sleep. So, so it sounds like six weeks every two years up at the Arctic. Is that about right? Yeah, about right. Yeah. And how much, how many months of planning beforehand would go into that? It will. Well, uh, we do the ice camps generally um, the last two weeks in March, all through April, or sometimes the first of March to mid-April. Uh, we did it then for two reasons. One, that's when the sun is starting to stay up for a length, a little bit longer in the in the north, and uh, we needed this. We needed the daylight to work on top of the ice. Submarines under the ice can work twenty-four hours a day. They don't care if it's day, right. but up the ice, we we need daylight. And we'd start off having maybe 10 or 12 hours of daylight uh, to work with. And at the end of the six weeks, we'd be up to 14 or 15 or 16 hours of daylight. But when, when the sun went down and it got dark, first off, man, it gets really cold when the sun goes down. I mean, it goes from, you know, it gets really cold. I guess that's a, a relative term. The average temperature was probably minus 40. Uh, but, you know, it could be minus 50 or minus 60 and then, back up to minus 30. So uh, it got cold and then it got dangerous. Uh, When it's dark, uh, you can't see what's out there, which means if the ice ice is always shifting and moving, it might crack a little bit, leave up a place of open water where, where you used to walk from here to there, there might be a puddle in between this 12,000 feet deep because the ice broke apart and you can't see that in the dark. So we don't do that. And then there are, you know, animals up there, notably the polar bear, and you can't see them if it's dark. So we'd stop at dark. Uh, everybody would hunker down and, you know, we'd get our sleep, get our paperwork done, whatever, and then start the next day early. Uh, I don't know what the question was now. You got it. You got it. Covered. Okay. <laughs> when, um, have you always been a sci-fi fan? Oh, uh, absolutely. My mom and dad were just uh, sci-fi nuts. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, they, we went, you know, back in the day when I was growing up, there wasn't, there weren't DVDs or VCRs or, uh, you know, videotapes or anything. If you didn't see it in the theater, you didn't see it. And uh, my mom and dad would take me to the, you know, the the old black and white sci-fi monster movies. And uh, they loved it. My dad's, some of my dad's favorite authors were Heinlein and, and Asimov, you know, and Bradbury and like that. So I, get, I grew up loving sci-fi. Uh I uh, I started with Stargate. I loved the movie, 
Uh, just thought it was wonderful. I like James Spader and, you know, Kurt, whatever his name is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I love the movie. And then when I heard that they were going to have a TV series and it was going to star MacGyver and I loved MacGyver, man, I had, I, I actually subscribed to Showtime just so I could watch Stargate when it first came out on Showtime for the first couple of years. Um, uh, so yeah, I've always been a sci fan. I'm a I'm a Trekkie. You know, I love uh love Trek. Uh and then a lot of the other ones, Fringe and um uh, the Warehouse 13 and mm-hmm. all the rest of the crazy ones that came and went. I was just a big I've always been a big fan of all those. So you decided uh it was this 2005, 2006 to do a creation convention in Vancouver. Uh, well, for Stargate. I- I had moved in 2003 to San Diego mm-hmm. and uh, fi- found out after having lived in Hawaii for 27 years that you in, living in San Diego, you can get in your car and actually drive somewhere else, which I think was, you know, that's a concept. Uh, so I, ha- I found out they were having a Stargate convention up in Anaheim, and that was only like 45 minutes north. So I went to the convention, got in a hotel. You know, I, I had a chance to meet uh, a few of the stars and you know, and the and the directors and producers, and so much, so many of the of the fans, and it was just a wonderful experience. And it was uh, at, at the end of the convention, they announced that next year's convention was going to be in Vancouver, and they were going to include a set tour. And man, that that sold me right there. And I signed up the next day, and I was ready to go to Vancouver. So the next year, and that was probably oh five or so, I went up to Vancouver, and uh, that is where I met. N. John Smith, executive producer. Uh, they, uh, you know, they would have uh, signings, uh, autograph sessions here and there. And, and then they would have stage uh, lectures, you know, the seminar kind of things. Where, well, they had one uh, presentation where it was John Smith and two of the directors, Martin Wood and Andy Makita. And they were all on stage together answering questions. And I, I just loved, loved that part of it. Uh, somebody asked John Smith. It was so funny. He was what that I guess what they call a line producer. Yes. Basically, he was in charge of the the money scheduling, uh, mundane stuff that really has nothing, not really much to do with making movies, but more running a business. Yes. Uh, and uh, somebody asked John Smith. One of the questions he got was, "Mr. Smith, you remember an episode Empty Flats where this they did this and they did that? Do you know why they did it that way?" And John sat there and thought and said, you know, I don't know why they did it that way, but I can tell you what it cost. <laughs> That's so, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was my part uh, was, of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions they got toward the end of their session was, you know, everybody else has a table to sign autographs. How come you guys don't have a table to sign autographs? And they looked over to the guy that was in charge and said, you know, we'll sign if you want us to. Right. And, and so they put a table out in the hall at the end of the hall yeah. with three chairs behind it. And they set those three guys down behind and people could stand, line up in the hall and get their autographs. Well, the next session after theirs was another one I wanted to go to. So I was in the, uh, in the hall and toward the end of it, I came out and there were only like four or five more people left in line for these three, the two, two producers and the executive producer, two directors and exec. So at that time, I had come up with my own little scheme to be remembered. And I had a picture of myself standing in front of a submarine in the Arctic. And I autographed it. You know, it's eight by 10. I, had, I printed them up on my computer at home. Uh, <laughs> I autographed this picture. And then on the back of it, I had a little sticker that had my name and telephone number and email address on it. And whenever one of the stars would autograph a picture for me, I would give them an autographed picture of me. And... uh so uh, I got I finally got to the end of, uh, up to the line. I was bas- practically the last person in line, and because of my personality or whatever, I tend to gravitate toward the person in charge. I just do. I mean, it's that way nowhere wherever I go. And uh, John Smith was in the middle. I didn't ignore Martin Wood or Andy Makita, but I stood in front of John Smith, and I handed him each a picture of me after I got them to autograph a picture. And John says, well, what is this? And I said, well, this is 
me is what I do for a living. I, you know, I'm, I work for the U.S. Navy and I go to the Arctic on submarines. And John, you know, he said, you know, I've been trying to get to the Arctic for like 10 years on those Russian icebreakers or something. I've been, I want to go to the North Pole. Can you get me up to the North Pole? And I think he was just, you know, making conversation and being, you know, nice. Right. And I said, well, well, Mr. Smith, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I can't get you to the North Pole, but I might be able to get you to an ice camp a couple of hundred miles south of the North Pole. Well, he beamed and handed me a business card and said, now, if you're serious, you give me a call. So um, I, I didn't know if I was serious or not. Now, I'm the officer in charge of the camp, but it, it's somebody above my pay grade that decides who get to go, who gets to go and what's going to happen. They tell me and then I make it happen. So I came back and talked to my boss at Arctic Sublab, told him the thing. My boss, a uh, very good friend of mine. We were more like friends than co-workers. Uh, he was a sci-fi fan, but had never got into Stargate. Uh, but I, he said, now that Stargate thing, he said, now that's that's Air Force, isn't it? I said, yeah, the uh, Air Force special, you know, special ops are the guys that run the Stargate in Cheyenne Mountain and stuff. He says, ah, all right. He said, well, you know, what do you have in mind? And I said, well, I'd kind of like to see if we can get maybe two or three of the on-screen people to come up and maybe get them to uh, agree to sign autographs or take pictures when we have the submarine surface through the ice. And that would be kind of like a morale thing for the crew, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, instead of a boondoggle for the Stargate people, who are Canadian, by the way. And uh, he said, well, I guess if we can if we can sell it as some something good for the crew, we might be able to sell it to Big Navy. Let me see what I can do. So he starts liaisoning them with the people in Washington D.C. and I let it go. Uh, I talked to John Smith. Well, I talked after Jeff said, "Yeah, we might be able to do it." I I got my business card out and I composed just a glorious email to John Smith about what we could do and stuff like that, and I sent it off. And then about 15 seconds later, I get the return bing that says uh, this email address is not valid. Oh. And I thought, well, you know, but I am not I am not shy. And there was a phone number on the card. Correct. So and he did give it to I, you. Yeah, I pa- I picked up the phone and dialed. And I, ring, ring, ring. Stargate, can I help you? And I said, yes. Um, yes, uh, this is Barry Campbell. I met uh, Mr. Smith at a convention a few weeks ago. And I wonder if I might be able to talk with him for, you know, well, the secretary, uh, who I learned to love, is his gatekeeper. Yeah. And, of course, here is a crazy fan that met Mr. Smith at a convention that now wants to talk to him on the phone. I don't think so. Uh, so she said, well, Mr. Smith is not in his office right now. I think he's down on the set. I said, well, okay. Um, he was probably in the office. I said, okay, well, can I leave a message for him? Uh, or when will he be back? Oh, it should be two or three hours, you know. I said, well, can I leave a message in case he comes back earlier? Yeah, he doesn't really return calls like that, but I'll take your name and number. So she took my name and number. Well, three minutes later, ring, ring, ring. Hey, Barry, it's John Smith. <laughs> and that's how we that's how we started. I told him what was going on a little bit. In that. So we were looking at doing maybe two or three of the on-screen personalities and a couple of support people to come up for one night, just to fly up, uh, stay there overnight, and then fly back to Prudhoe Bay the next day. And we could, we could, we could do that. Uh, and then a, a week or two or a couple of weeks later, Jeff calls me into his office, my boss. And he said, Barry, I was just watching a show on TV called E-Ring. Do you remember that show? Me? It was about the E-Ring. E-Ring. It was, it was called, it was about the Pentagon. Oh. Uh, uh, and the E-Ring, you know, they have ABC and D and E-Rings in the Pentagon. Okay. And it was a show, a military show, but it centered in the Pentagon. Never and he, uh, you know, okay. He said, I, I was watching this show, and it's got Army and Navy and Air Force and Marines. They're all interacting in the Pentagon. He said, I wonder if the uh, Stargate people would be interested in in filming in the Arctic and not just not just being coming up for a visit. Uh, the Navy could support that, you know? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I don't know a lot about it, but my understanding is that if they live, they leave their studio and go two blocks away, they take like seven tra- semi-trailers full of stuff and 150 people uh, to go, you know, on a remote shoot. And, of course, we can't support anything like that. He said, no, we can't. He said, well, why don't you call them up and see what kind of how if they could do a skeleton crew and come up and do filming for, you know, a day or two. So I called John back and I told him and he said, man, I don't know. He said, you know, we take a lot of people when we go. I said, we could probably 
do maybe 15 people, maybe 5,000 pounds a year for, you know, two or three days. If you could, you know, get any, you know, maybe you could get background scenery or anything, then we might be able to do that. He said, well, let me think about it. Then I get called back into Jeff's office again. And he said, I was talking to Big Navy and they said that we not we would be able to probably let them film a submarine surfacing through the ice. And we might be able to let them get on the submarine and film, too, while they're up there. And I said, man, these guys are going all out. Let me talk to John. So I called John. He says, I don't know, Barry. Let me see. So here's the story I heard because I wasn't there. But John tells me he went into Martin Wood's office. No, no, Brad Wright. He went into Brad Wright's office. The the big, you know, the, yep. the, uh, the head guy in charge. And he says... Um, Brad, I met this guy at a at a convention and he works for the U.S. Navy and the submarine force. And he can get us up to the Arctic and film on and in a submarine coming through the ice in the Arctic. What do you think? And Brad says, you know, John, I don't know if you've watched the show, but we go, we use the Stargate to go to other planets. Uh, he said, now we could probably use the Arctic as maybe an ice planet or something like that. But then when a nuclear submarine, a U.S. nuclear submarine come bursting up through the ice, that would kind of blow the illusion don't you think and john said well yeah but you know you're the guy in charge you're the brains you're the inspiration behind this thing figure it out and then he left and so brad figured it out uh and it turned out uh, after two years of working back and forth and after brad was able to come up with this script uh we got 18 people from the stargate company up at the camp for seven days and uh they uh, because the Navy wasn't uh, in the pro- in the in the business of supporting production companies, we charged them uh, uh, for the food they were going to eat, for the huts we had to build, for helicopter time, all the rest of that stuff. And John tells me later, man, he said that was a bargain. He said wow. you could have charged, charged us five times that we would have paid it, <laughs> but we just wow. charged them what it cost. we just charged them what it cost. And uh, anyway, it was. Uh, and then we, you know, we made it happen then. So it was two years after I met John that we got him up to an ice camp. Man, that is just, that is, that is mind blowing. And it's, it is the, uh, uh, one, one of, one of the cooler sequences in, in all of continuum, you know, it's, and it's, it's one of the reasons that, uh, everyone was so excited to see it because I don't think, I don't think that had ever been shot before, uh, at least with that level of sophistication, a submarine breaking through the ice at the North no, Pole. I think, I think there probably were some Navy newsreels back in the right. day that showed it, but nothing for public consumption, real public consumption, and nothing certainly a, a commercial, you know, vent, enterprise. So uh, it was new. It was uh, it was fun for me too. Uh, I have been officer in charge for a half a dozen of these camps. I have participated on the submarine in about 400 surfacings through the ice. So you don't really get to see much except the inside of the submarine as we burst up through. I have been the officer in charge at an ice camp when submarines surfaced, but they surface miles, two, three miles away from the command hut. And that's kind of like where I live in the command hut. So I had never seen a submarine surface through the ice live. And, and David, I retired never having seen that in person. I didn't see that. I didn't see the one on Stargate continuum because I was back at the command hut working logistics, getting people to and from the submarine. The next, the next time we had a camp two years later, I made it a point to be at a surfacing site when a submarine surfaced and uh, got out to the surfacing site. And it was huge. The surfacing site that Alexandria used for the movie was only maybe a hundred yards wide and uh, you know, a half a mile long as they had to orient themselves, you know, in the, in the feature just right. So they could come up uh, was not an easy thing to do. It took them three tries, but that two years later, when we were, we had a big, big, what they call a polinia thin ice, two or three feet thick. That was probably a mile in diameter. It was huge. So we went out, uh, on sort of like the edge of, you know, a few hundred yards from shore, cut a big X in the ice with shovels. So the upper looking camera from the submarine could see it. They could orient themselves under it. And that's where we wanted them to, to surface. And we were going to use that big spot 
for many surfacing. So we're going to move that X around, you know, the different places. So I'm sitting on the, on an ice Ridge, uh, freezing my butt, literally, uh, wa- watching the X and I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting feedback from the guys that are at the X and they're having the underwater phone and stuff. And they're okay. Mr. Campbell, they're on, they're on their way up now. It should be, a, you know, and I'm right. I'm watching them crash. They come through way over there, way over there. I had not, I didn't see it at all. I was looking at the X. They missed it by half a mile. Oh, oh gosh. And that was the only chance I had. And so I've never actually uh, seen that. Well, and uh, they did, like you said, for continuum, they did it on, on the third try. It, it thankfully worked, but you're dealing with major currents, right? Not, not to There's... mention this huge piece of machinery. You can't just pull up and come uh, pull up to the spot and then, and then, and then rise. Uh, on, you know? if, you're re- if you're real lucky, that works that way, but that's like one out of 80 times. These guys, they knew they were doing this for filming. They wanted to hit the X. And the, the joke at our, at the ice camps was that the safest place to be when a submarine is surfacing is at the center of that X because they'll never hit it. They'll always be off. <laughs> and you have uh, to this, be prepared to drop everything and run if you feel something beneath you. Right. So I mean, uh, not, no we, joke. Yeah, so. we were standing, we were all standing, or they were all standing on the thick ice, five foot thick. And then there was this hundred yards of uh, like two foot thick ice that the submarine was going to come in. The X is out in front. And there was a wicked uh, left to right current as they they had to line up with the length, the long way in, in the uh, Polinia, uh, because the short way wasn't big enough for them to come up in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, but there was a sideways current pushing them one way and uh, they would get under the X and start coming up and then they would drift. And now they're under that thick ice and they tried it twice. And the captain was determined he was going to make this happen. So he talked to the ice pilot on board, one of the guys that worked for me and said, how do we make this happen? And the guy said, well, captain, we can make it happen, but it's going to take some, some cojones here. We're going to have to start surfacing under the thick ice, knowing that when we finally get there, we'll be under the X. We'll have to, you know, time it. We know how fast we're drifting. We've done it twice. Captain said, okay, let's give it a shot. And by golly, they did, and it worked. And on that third time, five hours after they started, they surfaced through the ice. Uh, the the camera crew, the cameras, the the actors, all of my guys were out there for five or six hours in 40 below waiting for these guys to come up. And now we had a break inside. Yeah, we had a warming hut. Oh, you, took okay, out, so there was something. Okay. Yeah, we had an eight by eight by eight warming hut uh, with a propane heater in it that uh, people would c- could get in and, and warm up. Okay. Uh, and they would, you know, they when they knew there was going to be another hour, they would take the cameras in there and all that stuff. So, uh, and then, but they spent a lot of time just out there looking and waiting and watching. So. Uh, uh, but it happened and it worked. And <laughs> there's an underwater telephone the submarine has on board. And then we had a portable underwater telephone at the site uh, with a little hydrophone sticking through the ice so we could talk to the submarine. And they would tell us in code that they were hovering, that they were on their way up, that it was 50 more feet or whatever. And that's how the people on ice know when to expect them. Uh, and when they uh, when they broke through the ice... The uh, the underwater telephone hydrophone for the submarine is on the bottom, so it's still underwater. They can still talk to us in it. And the captain's voice comes over the underwater telephone and says, that was for Hollywood. Wow. Yeah, that's so <laughs> cool. <laughs> the the camp itself, I want to show your pictures uh, during, during this part of the discussion. Um, tell us uh, you know what these things were made of how, what your typical personnel was you know how how you assembled it the logistics behind it plywood two is weeks. all is mainly what i remember and i was like yeah plywood? it's mostly plywood it's yeah. the uh the the huts are 20 feet long 8 feet wide and 8 feet tall made out of 4 by 8 sheets of plywood but they're prefabbed and the plywood is two sheets of quarter inch plywood with one inch of styrofoam insulation between. So they're pretty well insulated. And they sit on a platform that's 
three quarter inch plywood raised up uh, about six inches from the ice that it's sitting on. So uh, you're not right on the ice, but you're darn near. And then the ceiling and the walls are all insulated with the styrofoam. Uh, each of, each of the huts, then, uh, if it was a sleeping hut, we'd have three, three sets of bunk beds. So six people could live in that hut. Uh, it's eight by eight foot wide, 20 feet long, eight feet tall. And there would be a kerosene heater, uh, inside the hut to warm it up. Uh, they had a door and the door had a, uh, a prefab door, you know, pre-hung door that they put in all, all measured out. And it had a about a 12 inch by 12 inch um, plexiglass window in it, so you could look out through the door. But that really was the only window that was in the hut. It was all otherwise it was all uh, just plywood. And we had, uh, and then we'd have as, as many huts as we needed to overnight the max number of people we expected to have at the camp. Uh, we'd have a command hut made essentially the same way, but it was two or three times the size. Uh, because that's where we had uh, all the microphones and and uh, communications equipment and all the other things we needed to run the camp. Uh, somewhere away from the center of the camp, we would have a big double insulated uh, Quonset hut style tent that was uh, that housed uh, diesel generators, mm. and the generators then made the electricity, which we would just string on pieces of you know, long two by fours uh, for the wiring to go from place to place in the camp. So there was electricity in every hut. We had a fluorescent, you know, four foot fluorescent light in there, plus an outlet uh, that you could use to charge up your computer or whatever you needed. Um, we also had then a, a bigger hut that we had set aside for the divers. I can talk about divers later mm-hmm. uh, for their equipment and for them to sleep and work. And uh, then we had a super big double insulated Quonset style tent that was the mess tent. And it would seat 24 people at a time attached to the end of it. The uh, one end was a door. The opposite end was attached to more of that insulated plywood where we built the kitchen facilities. Uh, We would bring up three cooks, a head cook and two helpers. And, uh, uh, and then bring up all the food we needed and it was all you know pretty much frozen food mm-hmm. uh and we had we had the biggest freezer in the world right outside the back door um but we also would bring up bring up vegetables and milk and things that didn't get frozen and we would we would put um uh shelving metal shelving inside that that hut and uh the bottom shelf was the coldest and as you went up it got warmer as it went up so we could keep refrigerated goods in the hut because it was sort of re- inside the hut. It was outside the hut. It was freezer temperature inside the hut. It was like refrigerator temperature. Oh, man. Yeah. So I tell people we worked in the freezer and we ate in the refrigerator. <laughs> Jeez. Um, and the, the cooks uh, were used to cooking for large groups. I mean, they were either cruise ship uh, experienced or something like that. Mm. They ordered all the food Meals were just wonderful. They're, they attempted to get 5,000 calories per day into every person at the camp. Uh, most of that, most of those calories were used to keep yourself warm. Uh, and so, and they had three full meals a day. Uh, the, uh, we'd also have uh, outhouses. Uh, it would be four foot by four foot, eight foot tall, uh, uninsulated, unlit, unheated with a, a door, you know, and in, in the center of it would be a two foot square uh, box. Uh, that's about toilet height. Yeah. Whatever. 17 I'm showing inches. It now. Okay. And lots and, of toilet paper on the side. You weren't going to run out anytime soon in this particular shot. No, no. And uh, nailed to the top of that was a, a toilet seat, but it was offset toward the one end of that box so that you're, you know, you wouldn't have to scoot all the way back into the center of the box. (laughs) But that was also good because the box was lined with a double lining of uh, super heavy garbage bags, those big black leaf bags. Yes. And so when you use the bathroom, it went into the leaf bag and it would start creating kind of a little pyramid 
under the center of the toilet seat. <clears throat> and when the pyramid got to the point where it was getting uncomfortably close, you would just take the box and rotate it 180 degrees, uh-huh. take the lid and, and change it back. So now you've got a, a clean uh, a spot with, you know, with no big pyramid that you could fill back up again. And then when the, when the, when it got, when the box got full, you just take the lid off and which would had the toilet seat on it, grab up the sides of the garbage bag, twist them up, tie them up, set them outside the hut where it would freeze almost instantly. And then once a day, our camp gorillas, which were the divers and, and other guys that would, that would take care of the housekeeping at the camp, they'd come by on a snowmobile and pick them all up and take them out to the dump. And, and, you know, uh, we'd burn them up that way. Um, for the men, we had uh, a peephole, and I think there's a picture of that too. Yep. And we'd, we'd have at least two of them, sometimes three, at the outskirts of the camp. And it usually would be a, a four-foot by four-foot by four-foot box, maybe two feet high, with a two-by-two pole set in the center of it. Now, some of the once in a while, we'd have a box without a pole. And the box with the pole, that's where for guys who were, you know, they like to aim. Some guys need to have something to aim at. And then other, the other box was like free form. You didn't have to, you know, you just had to get it in the box. And by the end of six weeks with the ones with the poles in them, it looked like a giant yellow popsicle upside down. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine. I, I, I can get the, I understand the, the huts, but I would think that part of me would freeze off. You know, doing the other one. Well, when uh, you know you, you train, it takes some training. You uh, you go out, and you put your back to the wind. Uh-huh. That's important. Yeah. Now get back to the wind, and then you dig down through twelve layers of clothing. Yeah. Uh, and and get yourself uh, situated. Now putting your back to the wind does not always put your back to the camp. Of course. So many mornings I would be out there, and uh, with my free hand I would wave to the nice lady cooks as they walked by saying, good morning, you know, it's nice to see you guys, and off they would march. Um, so it was the, uh, the, real, the real test of masculinity was uh, going uh, in the middle of the night. And uh, as I got older doing these camps, those bathroom visits through the middle of the night got more frequent. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we train, you, uh, you get up, you get, you know, you get your camp booties on and you throw your parka on, you get your flashlight, you look out through the window in the door to make sure there's not a bear in sight. No bear, open the door, look all around with your flashlight, march straight to the thing, you know, back to the wind, but, you know, keeping looking around with your flashlight, do your business, and then get back to your hut. Uh, <clears throat> that was, I mean, it sounds worse than it was. It was cold, but there's a certain peace in the middle of the night. The only sound is those generators in that tent way, way, way away. Otherwise, it's a little bit of wind and, you know, there's more more stars than you can count. Uh, all the different northern constellations you're used to are just blazing. And then generally, uh, at least some, at some point during the camp, we get some northern lights showing up. Uh-huh. And, uh, so getting up in the middle of the night to have to pee was sometimes a treat. Because for those guys that didn't have to get up, they'd miss the lights. Uh, I had I was mentioning that at at breakfast one morning while the Stargate group was there. Now we had <clears throat> we had Amanda and uh, five other women in a hut by themselves, and that was uh, a couple of the camera assistants, makeup, uh, uh, costumes, those folks. Uh, they had brought some women up. We told them that was fine, and. Uh, I had mentioned that the Northern Lights were really great last night. And so Amanda, she went over to the command hut at one point and asked that they wake up the woman's hut if the Northern Lights were out. Because we always had two people on watch all through the night, the officer and his assistant. The assistant would wander the camp once an hour just to make sure there weren't any cracks appearing or, you know, check for fire or whatever, just a safety thing. And he's the guy that would say, oh, yeah, the, 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 uh, Northern lights are out, so he'd go and knock on the wrap on the door of the women's hut, and they came up and he wrapped on it, and they all got up and they were up for two or three hours watching, taking pictures, and enjoying the lights. That's amazing. Can yeah. You, can you talk a little bit about uh, your 
speech at uh, uh, Stargate to let them know what they were in for when they were going up there. And this is the story where Christopher Judge excused right. himself. Yes. we uh, uh, Normally, when we have people come to the ice camp, we'll give them a, a orientation, safety, and survival training, which lasts four or five hours. And uh, this is for anybody that's never been to the Arctic before at one of our camps. So we'd either go to their place, if there were a lot of them, or they'd come to San Diego and we'd train them at our place. And I was in charge of the training because I was going to be the officer in charge. And nobody else, frankly, wanted to do it. So I did it. Uh, and so we told the Stargate folks that they were going to have to have some orientation before they got up there for their own sake. So Mike Hacking, who was my opposite number at Prudhoe Bay, he and I were going up early, which oh, we always went up a couple weeks early. And on the way up uh, to, to Alaska, we stopped at Vancouver and uh, rented a car and put all our stuff in it and went over to Bridge Studios and up in their conference room where they do the, you know, the, the, the uh, table reads and all that kind of stuff. They set it up for us to do our lecture. And everybody that was going to go up to the camp showed up that day. Uh, it was a Saturday. And we gave a five-hour orientation. So the first part's orientation. Second part is safety. And the last part's survival. Uh, and it gets so it's more and more direct, dramatic the, more, the longer you go through it. Uh, the only person that really wasn't in attendance was Richard Dean Anderson, and they assured me that he would be given all the appropriate stuff to read and look at, which I don't think he ever did. Um, but, you know, we took care of him anyway. Um, so, it, you know, and I was telling, you know, at the in this safety and survival section, I said, you know, you guys go on um, uh, away from the studio and on location uh, for a lot of times doing different things out in the desert, out in the forest. And, uh, you know, it's it's sane and it's, it's not, it's not in a studio, but it's, it's not really that there's not really danger involved unless you're stupid. Uh, in the Arctic, it's not like that. There's actual danger of death in the Arctic and you have to be aware of that and respect it because it's true. Uh, you could, you know, you can, uh, uh, there, a crack can open up. You can fall into the ice. Once you fall in, unless there's somebody there to pull you out, you're not getting out. Two people there died are, during production. Around the same t- around the same time, the film is dedicated to them. They they were actually on a submarine. We can talk about that in a minute if you yeah. want. But uh, at the camp, there is actual danger. There's danger of frostbite. You have to be aware of what frostbite looks like, what it feels like. You have to uh, look out for your buddy because if your ears and nose are starting to get frostbite, you won't know it because they go numb. You have to keep your eyes on your buddy to to say, hey, listen, you're getting some frostbite. And, you know, rub your ears or, uh, you know, do this, do something to, we have to warm you back up. Um, and uh, polar bears don't have any natural enemies. Uh, and they're very curious. And uh, they can outrun a man. Uh, so, you know, we, we always watch out for them every time we have an aircraft up. But when they leave, they circle the camp looking for bears, whether it's a helicopter or a plane. When they arrive back, they do a circle first to find out. So we're always on the lookout Mm. Uh, and, you know, but we have gotten up in the morning and found that there was a polar bear sniffing around the the butt end of the helicopter uh, one day. You can see his big old footprints out there. So there are, you know, there are dangers. Well, uh, and it's not so much to frighten them, but just to make them aware, uh, make them be aware and don't take it casually. You know, every every time you're out of your hut, you have to be aware. Keep your head on a swivel and remember all these things. Uh, you can smile and joke and laugh and have a good time, but you have to keep your wits about you. Well, at the end of this, uh, uh, Christopher Judge was there, and also uh, Rachel Luttrell was there. Mm. They were also they were planning on going up. Rachel uh, bowed out because it turned out later that she was pregnant at the time, and uh, so she bowed out and then later told us she was pregnant. Uh, Christopher bowed out because. He uh, he told somebody that uh, I looked around the room and realized that the only person at the table that was the same color as a seal, which is the polar bear's favorite food, was me. So I decided not to go. (laughs) I have made fun of him ever since for this. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. What a trip. And I mean, You've got to be proud of the finished product, you know? Oh, how, how Brad worked you guys in. Yeah, you know, there was a, 
uh, Brad was brilliant in the way he got, you know, the Navy involved. And uh, when he, we wrote the sketch, the outline for the script, he called me and we, I talked to my boss and my boss went to big Navy and said, they've got it written. So the Navy rescues the air force. Well, that sealed the deal, you know? Right. <laughs> so, you know, Brad is brilliant. Uh, but there was one point where um, it turned out that, you know, um, Michael, Michael Shanks and uh, Ben Browder and Amanda, they all had come back through the gate and gotten onto the boat. Right. And continuum. Uh, and then uh, when they when they left the boat to trek across the Arctic, they left Michael behind. Uh, and so that boat sequence uh, and them sliding down the ice outside the boat, that was all in studio. Mm-hmm. The inside of the boat and sliding down. All the rest of the Arctic stuff was actually in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. But I got a call from Brad saying, I've just learned that now we did all this filming in March because that's when we have to have our ice camp. Mm-hmm. And they weren't going start, to start production until May. So everybody was on contract for May. And so they had to go out and scrounge cameramen and and everybody else, you know, to get them under contract for this one, you know, seven day shoot in March. And uh, when they went to Michael Shanks, he had already signed up to do three episodes of 24 at that time. So he couldn't go to the Arctic. So Brad called me to say, I've got to write him out of the trek across the Arctic part and let's figure this out. So after about a half an hour going back and forth, we came up with the step your foot in the ice and freeze your foot part. And that would keep him from legitimately being able to make the trek across the Arctic. And that's why he got a frozen foot and and, and ended up losing his leg in there. Wow. Yeah, because he couldn't make that March shoot. Yeah. Well, you, you, that's contracts, you know, when you, mm-hmm. you get something else going on. Yeah, but what what an experience. I've got some um, fan questions for you. Okay. So it looks like Gategabbers asked, did all the huts have names? I noticed Luxor stenciled on the side with one of the Stargate, with the one with the Stargate banner on it. We uh, typically at each camp, we pick a theme and name each hut for the theme. <laughs> and the theme, theme picked this year was Las Vegas hotels. <laughs> uh, once, sometimes it's cartoon characters. Uh, sometimes it's uh, famous explorers, yeah. whatever it was. But this year it was, uh, it was uh, Las Vegas hotels. So every, every hut was named after a Las Vegas hotel. Raj Luthra, did you give a tour of the station to the cast and crew? I'm sure that had a, a part to play in once once you guys were up there showing everything around to everybody because they were living uh, they were living there for they're going to be living there for a week. So, oh yeah, well when they you know I gave them the orientation and then when they arrive on the aircraft, I I met every person that came to the camp as officer in charge. Some guys didn't do that; I always did. Escorted them back to the mess tent, got them fixed up with a cup of coffee or hot chocolate. And then gave them their their on site orientation then, which was about a half an hour. Tell them about the outhouses and the peepholes and what time dinner is and what to wear to dinner and what not to wear and and safety and where, the extent of the camp. Don't go beyond this and all that stuff. And uh, in fact, there were two things that uh, we did at the camp. One of the one of the rules we had was cooks don't wash dishes. That was a rule. So we had a whiteboard up. And people would sign up to do dishes after breakfast, lunch, and dinner uh, throughout the, uh, you know, like the mm-hmm. next week. Week, <clears throat> And uh, I had told the, the Stargate cast and crew that that would be expected of them. And when they got up there, they were only going to be there a week. The entire week was already filled up with volunteers to do dishes. So they just got up, got the eraser, started erasing names and putting their own names in. And everybody did dishes. Uh, I think except Richard, but everybody, uh, John Smith and his wife, Amanda, they all, Ben, they all did dishes at one point. They they felt like they had to do that to be part of the camp. And the other thing we always had to do was we set the camp up um, miles and miles and miles away from the shore on a an ice flow. This particular ice flow was about five feet thick and about a mile in diameter, but it had a bunch of bumps, a bunch of little ridges in it. And those are the old, that's the older ice. When the sea ice freezes, it's salt water. So the ice has got a high salt content. But every year that it doesn't, doesn't melt in the summer, that all, that some of that salt leaches back into the water. 
So after three or four or five years, what you're left with is pure salt, not salt, salt-free ice, freshwater ice. And you, and that's where the, the big humps and stuff are. So we would go out, sweep the, the ice or the snow off the top of it, get a pickaxe and pick at that, taste it, see if it was salty or not. And that would be our source of drinking water, cooking water, water to clean with uh, for the camp. And so everybody had the responsibility to go out and help mine ice because everybody had drinking water. So the I, I'd get up and, you know, I'd be, I didn't mind ice. I was a little busy, but I'd walk to the command hut and I would see uh, Grizz and Ben and somebody else had a snowmobile and pickaxes and they were heading out to the ice mine to mine ice. And they took their part just like everybody. When I, when I told, you know, I was a big Stargate fan and I had been involved with, you know, set tours and stuff. So I'd seen some of it. And I realized what professionals these folks really are. And when I told my guys that we were going to have these uh, Hollywood types up at the camp for a week, they were just, Mr. Campbell, what the hell are you thinking? We're going to have to babysit. We're not going to have any time to do our jobs. It's going to be hell. I can't believe you even agreed to anything like that. Well, uh, about three hours after they had arrived, my crew had realized that, hey, these guys are professionals. These guys are workers. These guys are ready and able to do what needs to be done. And the the first meal was, you know, the Stargate people sitting at their table and the Amplis people sitting at theirs. But by breakfast the next morning, it was all mixed up. Everybody was sitting with everybody else, and it was all one big uh, crew at the at the at the. Uh, and my guys had so much respect for them. They would they would give them anything they asked for. And they were so uh, delighted. I mean, they would they would say, "Now you think you can do this? Oh, hell, yeah!" You know that my guys wanted to do it. They didn't want to ask, uh, but it really just it was just such a pleasure watching it all come together like that. People, th- those people pull their weight. You know when, oh, when it is when it it it's appropriate. You know, and, yeah. and even when it's not, it's like you know where can yeah. I help? So that's right. So that's just that's just absolutely. who they are. Um, uh, Lock Watcher said, we appreciate what you did for Stargate. Um, uh, but what, with the exception of Continuum, what's your favorite episode of uh, the series? Uh, the 200th episode. Ah. <laughs> That's, I, I, I don't have to think about that. Those puppets. Ah, that was great. <laughs> That's great. Yes. I remember sitting in Brad's office and he said, we're making puppets. We're doing yeah. marionettes. I'm like. Our, I'd seen yeah, I'd seen Team America and I was like, okay, this is gonna be yeah. this is gonna be crazy. Yeah. And after that, I guess uh uh Wormhole Extreme uh, that was another that was favorite. Absolutely. Uh, uh general so yeah. So many. I mean the one where they where Tilka Tilkin uh and uh O'Neill keep going back in in Groundhog's Day doing the Groundhog's Day thing. Wind of opportunity. Yeah, that was it's yeah, a riot. So there, was, uh, there were so many. So General Maximus wants to say, can I just say from one fan to another, thank you so much for everything you did and the phenomenal and truly unique contribution you made to Stargate. Man, I did it for me, guy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad everybody else enjoyed it, but it was just, uh, it's purely selfish and, and, uh, and it worked, man, and it just worked out. So you are, uh, and Lockwatcher also says, uh, because you're a beekeeper, uh, have you made any mead yet? No, but I'm I'm now uh, beekeeping with my buddy down the road. Uh, there's a winery a half a mile from my house, and uh, I met him at the winery one day. Turns out he's an ex Navy P three pilot, where I'm an ex Navy submariner. So uh, he was the guy looking for the submarine, and I was the guy in the submarine trying not to get found. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, but we hit it off just fine. He has a big orchard, so we've got a couple of couple of. Uh, uh, beehives at his place so i'm a beekeeper with him there's we have four hives between us and we share the responsibilities it's about three and a half miles between us uh he makes wine and mead so uh, i don't have to make it myself uh mike makes it for me and then you're the honey guy yeah okay 
I'm a few hours from you, sir, and I am going to go up and uh, film some of this to share with everybody later this year. Oh, I, mean, I want to see the bees. I'd love to have you. I got a bee suit that'll fit you, I'm sure. And uh, we'll get we'll get out there and uh, pop the top on one of the hives and Can't let you meet some wait. bees. Cannot yeah. wait. I'll, we will we will make it a part of Dial the Gate for sure because this is that that's always fascinated me. So, Barry. This has been a tremendous treat. I regret uh, not having you on the show sooner. I've always wanted to wait for the right time. And uh, it means so much to me for you to retell this this story in such, de- such wonderful detail uh, again. So it was great to have you. David, I've got another hour uh, of stuff to talk about. So if you want to do it again. Let's, let's have you back. Let's have you we back. We can on. do it. I've got some behind the scenes. I want to uh, talk about retrieving the torpedoes. I mean, that was oh, yeah. always we, just just brilliant. We can talk about that. So, I mean, I can talk about when uh, when Richard Dean Anderson, you know, uh, got to say "cut," um, <laughs> you know, yeah, all, all kind of stuff. So Let's there's have lots you back. of yeah, love, love to. Yes, and the film was dedicated to the memory of of uh, Continuum was dedicated to Paul McCann and Anthony Huntrod. They were the ones who lost their lives during an accident under the ice cap on the HMS Tireless uh, during uh, production. Of just the before the just before the uh, Stargate people arrived, oh man! They they had an explosion on board, and uh, for, unfortunately, two of the sailors lost their lives, and one was seriously injured. Uh, the folks at the ice camp uh, jumped into into uh, emergency mode and uh, did some amazing, amazing rescue work uh, to get that uh, the injured sailor out of the boat and up to Anchorage uh, for surgery. So man. it was a uh, it was a, a tense time, and it was a, a, a tragedy. Uh, Tireless went ahead and, and uh, was was called home after that, mm. and uh, Alexandria stayed to complete her mission. And so we were able to we were able to continue with uh, you know I got to call our I got to call our called Brad Wright right away, yeah. and he was you know do, are we going to come or not? And I talked to Big Navy, and they said yeah, uh, let them come. You know it's uh, it's we we might as well keep on going. So we did. Well, um, thank you again for uh, uh, making this all, you know, possible with with being a Stargate fan. You know, it's where it's, it's the, your fandom can lead to some surprising things and some some really cool rewards. So, and yeah. you know what? I'll have you back for another hour. We'll we'll finish the the round of stories. I'd love to. I'd love to. Anytime. Just let me know. Thank you, sir. Probably, go. All, Sorry. All the rest of you guys out there. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Um, if you've heard it before, I heard you. I hope you heard something different. If you hadn't heard it before, well, now you know. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up on this, and I'll be in touch with you real soon. Okay. All right. So I'm done. Yes, sir. Be well, my friend. You too. Thank you. Aloha. Aloha to you, Barry Campbell. Everyone, I uh, his stories are always so cool, and I'm always learning something new that I haven't uh, that I haven't heard before. So. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Dial the Gate. Uh, we have a pretty packed schedule now. Let me just let me just put it this way. Um, so Elena Huffman is going to be joining us uh, tomorrow, which is a Monday, January the twenty third at eleven a.m. Pacific time. So she's going to be discussing uh, her time on Stargate Universe as TJ. February the fourth at ten a.m. I have David McNally who played Hanno. Uh, most notably in Korai, and he also came back as uh, as Simon uh, in uh, Demons and also returned in Season 2 of Atlantis. Jonathan Glasner, his new show, uh, The Ark, is launching Wednesday, February the 1st. I talked with him yesterday, so a piece of that is actually going to be debuting tonight when I get off work uh, on to Dial the Gate. And then we will be having uh, his full interview to discuss the arc and more of his time on Stargate SG-1. That's going to be posted on February the 4th at noon after uh, David McNally. Then February the 11th at noon, we have James Tishner, visual effects producer and writer from Stargate SG-1. This is a long overdue interview. I apologize to everyone. And then Anna Galvin at 4 p.m. Pacific time, a little bit later on February the 11th, discussing her three different roles on Stargate SG-1, Atlantis, and Universe. Universe. Followed by February the 18th, we're really scheduling 
pretty far out there now. Uh, Bonnie Bartlett, she'll be back to discuss more Linnea on her episode of Stargate SG-1 and her new book just out now, Middle of the Rainbow. So if you go to dialthegate.com, you can click on Middle of the Rainbow here and it will take you to Amazon where you can purchase her book. So if you want to discuss her story, her, her life story, Middle of the Rainbow, how a wife, mother, and daughter managed to find herself and win two Emmys. Uh, this came out earlier this year, so we're going to have her uh, middle of February on the 18th, and um, I suggest you go and get her book so you can ask her about uh, about her story when she comes on to discuss it with us and and more of her uh, her time in Hollywood. Uh, my thanks to my team. I cannot make this uh, show possible without them. My producer, Linda Gategaber Fury, has really stepped up and helped me get these uh, these interviews booked. Um, I didn't know how how much I was really needing a pretty much a pretty much a full time producer almost until we started cranking things out uh, this year, as well as my moderating team, Summer, Tracy, Jeremy, Reese, and Anthony, and a big tremendous thanks to Frederick Marku at Concepts Web uh, for keeping our site up and running. My name is David Reed for the Dial of the Gate. We're going to be switching over to Wormhole Extremists now uh, to watch two more episodes of SG One Enigma and Solitudes. That's youtube.com slash wormhole extremists. We'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acri. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes, at dialthegate.com. <laughs>